0: Hey everybody, Eric here with a little note about today's episode before we dive in. We had a little bit of an issue with Seth's audio at the beginning. He's a little blown out. The first 10 minutes are a little rough, but please bear with us through that. uh, It gets way better after, I promise. And now on to the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break!
1: To go see a dead body. Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespy, And we are your hosts. The episode we have for you today is a little bit different than most of our other episodes, but sort of in the vein of the uh, Dark Tower episode we did a while back with uh, Glenn Mazzara. Our guest today is a man of unimpeachable horror bona fides. His 2009 novel Pride and Prejudice and Zombies sold over a million copies and was translated into over 20 languages before being adapted into a 2016 film of the same name. His follow-up novel Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was also a bestseller that found its way onto the big screen, which our guest then followed up by producing 2017's It Chapter One and 2019's It Chapter Two. Around that time, he was announced as the showrunner on an Eyes of the Dragon series for Hulu, which, well, that brings us to today, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Seth Graham Smith. How are you doing today, sir?
2: I'm doing great. Great to be here with you guys.
1: Very exciting to have you. How are you getting along in, you know, seclusion?
2: Oh, the the teen, yeah, the my teen. teen is going is really well. Um, no, it's it's uh, it's brutal. Like everyone's quarantine is, and uh, you know, I heard Lee Wanell uh, talking about quarantining with young kids, and I can relate. I have two dogs, two kids, and uh, I want to die. Basically, how old, every are, the, how old are they? old the day. kids? They are eleven and seven. Precocious oh, right little bundles, and uh, those are rascals. Uh, and, uh, and they have a lot of energy and nowhere to expend it. So that's mm. where, that's where we hit the, uh, the wall. You're making again. a
0: thin rope out of uh, napkin threads and are, you're going to be, uh, scaling the outside of your house.
2: scale down. the needle and escape and save Elaine. Oh, we're, but we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: We are indeed. Let's start off with your, your King origin story. How did Stephen King come into your world or Steve, well, as you call him?
2: I don't call him Steve. Let's get that straight right now. He's the big S. He's Uncle Steve, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, King came into my life around the time that my older son, I mean, about the same age my older son is now. So 11, which, you know, for the record is when a lot of us started reading King, but is Mm -hmm. too young. It's just too young. But I was not really that supervised. And I had a dad who ran a uh, bookstore at the time. This was in the 80s. So bookstores, for your people listening, were these places you could go
0: <laughs> and buy
2: physical copies of books that you would then read physically. Uh, it was kind of amazing. But my stepfather was a huge genre um, fan. And in addition to running a, a bookstore, he built shelves down in our cramped little basement and had 5,000 books down there, You know, ranging from fantasy to sci-fi to horror. And so- you know, I'd go down there and and browse the spines of all these books, and I would see Bradbury and Heinlein and Asimov and King and Koontz. And like he was really the the person who brought these into my into my world. And when I started showing an interest in reading some of them, you know, he gave me Skeleton Crew because he's like, Well, these are short. I actually remember the very first Stephen King story I ever read was Kane Rose Up in Skeleton Crew. And the reason it was Kane Rose Up is me at 11 years old flipped through the entire book and looked for the shortest story <laughs> in the whole book. And I think Kane Rose Up is like three and a half or four pages. It's, it's something absurdly short. And it, it is about a uh, a student blowing people's heads off from a dorm room window. And I'm like, well, here we go. I'm hooked. Yeah. And, and, and proceeded to then sort of dip my toe in the longer and longer stories, still keeping to the collections like Night Shift and Skeleton Crew at first, because I would look mm. at The Stand, I would look at it and go, you know, no, just there's no way I can get through that book. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I just became one of those kids, like I'm sure you and a lot of the people listening were, where I just got completely absorbed by King's books and his writing. And, you know, on the book side, he was the God and on the movie side, there was the other Steve uh you know in the eighties who was kind of like the god and they were you know my pop culture stepdads I guess you know throughout the eighties and nineties and those two Stevens kind of like shaped so many of the people making content today it's absurd including me and so uh you know I just kept on with it and and started to try and become a completist as I got deeper into my teen years. You know, there were very specific memories I have about Stephen King moments in my life. One that I've actually written about before, but never spoken about is when I was 13, my my parents sent me on this camping adventure or you know, over the summer. Uh, it was like this two-week thing, I think through the YMCA in Connecticut, where they took you for two weeks. Week one was at some camp and they put you in a lake in a canoe and they taught you all these canoeing basics. And then week two, they put you on an overnight bus down to Georgia or South Carolina, I forget which one, but you would ride the rapids in a canoe like helmets and, you know, and, and life jackets and the whole thing. And so every day we would start at our little camp at the top of the river, me and these other 13 year old boys, we would get in the water and we would canoe, canoe, canoe down to the very end of this passage of the river and all these rapids. And then A school bus would pick us up. We'd load our canoes on the top and we would wind our way back along the river back to our campsite, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I had brought a paperback of The Shining with me as my, you know, as my little flashlight nighttime distraction. And I would read it on the bus sometimes on the way back to camp at at the end of the day. And so one day we canoe down the river, we get out of the river, the bus meets us there. It's probably, you know, five, six o'clock at night. And we put the canoes. On top and, and I'm sitting by myself in the back of this school bus with these counselors and these other kids, you know, exhausted. And all of a sudden the school bus stops and I put down my paperback of The Shining where I'm about halfway through at this point. And one of the counselors from the front of the bus screams, no one look out the right side of the bus.
1: <laughs> and so
2: if this were a movie, you would what? You would cut to a long shot of the bus from behind as the bus lurches to the right because right. We right. All, you know- <laughs> We all went and pressed our faces to see whatever it was he didn't want us to see. And the first thing I saw was the bottom half, well, not the bottom, I guess the back end of a car sticking up out of the water. And then I tilted my gaze down, down, down closer to the broken guardrail and then to the side of the road where passersby were pulling bodies out. And it was a family of four a very overweight man, a a woman and two kids, and they were all the bluish gray of death. And I was beyond horrified and like so scared. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a dead person the first time I'd ever, you know, and I was away from home and I was halfway through the shining. Uh, And so we went back to our camp that night and the counselors all, you know, talked about it. Do we want to go home? Do we want to continue? We wanted to continue, but I to this day never finished reading The Shining. I put it away and never revisited it. And I hope I hope people understand why.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, that sounds like a weird camp. I don't know why they would uh, do that for you guys.
2: Yeah, it's uh it's I, I don't I No, just, I'm joking. Obviously oh. they didn't stage the
1: death of four people at this camp, you know. But Oh okay, uh, Jesus, Jesus. I,
2: I, <laughs> I was, I, yeah. you f- feel free to leave that in and make me look like an idiot because I truly did not know where you were going with that. You know, I was you gotta um,
1: stay on your toes. Gotta stay on your toes. It's stay fine. Yeah. fine. cast. But people, yeah, that would fucking that, how old were you?
2: I was thirteen. Oh, yeah, that would fuck me up. And, uh, and, and, yeah, so that was, um, that was a moment. And, uh, but then, you know, that was after I-, I think I was 12 when my stepfather gave me a first edition hardcover of The Eyes of the Dragon. And, uh, I remember it. I actually distinctly remember getting it because, you know, it's got that bright emerald green, co- you know, cover with a cool mm-hmm. dragon on it. And it's got these beautiful, like, Red foil stamp lettering and and you know it just doesn't look like a Stephen King book and yet it says you know Stephen King in these like medieval looking shiny letters and and it was so fascinating because I'd already known like some of the other stories that he'd written and and I could tell just from the cover that this was not at all like any of them and sure enough you know reading the book as a kid it was it was sort of like he had written a book for me in a weird way like I, I felt I felt like reading those short stories that i was you know peeking through a curtain into a sort of room i wasn't supposed to be in yet and right. very much on my toes but this felt like that a little bit but it also had this bizarrely chipper sarcastic judgmental narrator telling you you know the plight of all these characters going through this uh, mythical kingdom with you know there were swords and kings and fiery deaths and daring escapes and and, you know, it, it felt more daring and more dangerous than any fairy tale I'd ever read, you know, kind of just scary enough, just adult enough. But it was also just so eminently enjoyable. And yeah. and, and I loved it. Like later, years and years later, I come to find out that, you know, King had written, uh, you know, he'd obviously written what Carrie and Salem's Lot. And, you know, he, he'd had a, a string of hits, right, mm-hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s. And he had young kids. And his kids were like, well, dad, we know you're like this big writer now, but we can't read anything that you write. <laughs> like, you know, we can't participate in this with you. And, uh, and which, by the way, uh, you know, is something I can very much relate to. It's like my kids can't watch 95% of the stuff that I write or or participate in. And so he decided, okay, I'm going to write a bedtime story for my kids. And that was the genesis of, eyes of the dragon and then he writes it and it comes out and the Stephen King fan community as it you know stood in 84 85 was like uh what the hell is this
1: yeah they were pissed
2: they were pissed off and they let him know it and then do you know what the next book he wrote was
1: misery and he wrote misery. it in, in response to this yes yeah. he
2: did that's exactly right so you guys know and i just find that so fascinating that you know this this chain of events where he writes these, you know, horror classic novels. You know, very violent, very dark. His kids say, hey, "Can you write something for us?" He does. His fans say, "Stop that!" And then it leads to another classic Stephen King <laughs> right. novel, which is just, you know, as I've heard other people on your show say, it's not fair. It's just not fair how <laughs> fucking prolific he is, and uh, and how many good ideas he's he's exhausted his good idea, uh, supplied like years ago if you're any other writer on the face of the earth, but somehow he just keeps on going.
1: An interesting wrinkle to, to all this about like the, the, the fan uproar that occurred in 87 or whenever it was that he published it, it was 87, uh, was that he had actually published this before in 84 in like a, a hyper limited edition. So what I have to say to the Stephen King fans of 1987 is if you were really Stephen King fans, you would have had that edition for '84, and you would have known this was coming, motherfucker. That's right. That's yeah, what you I posers. Had yeah,
2: you fucking posers. Nerds.
1: Yeah, we're we're not going <laughs> to
0: hold it against you that there was no internet, and the only way you could have possibly have known that is if uh, <laughs> is if you were part of like some elite book clubs.
1: <laughs> I'm going to hold it against them. Fuck them.
0: But 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 it's a uh, fascinating time though, because that this is the same time period where huge Stephen King fans had no idea he was publishing. Uh, uh the, Gunslinger. He, he the Gunslinger. He published the Gunslinger. and published the Dark right. Tower books, and it wasn't until uh the uh, Gunslinger appeared on the uh, the list of the author's previous titles, and I think Pet Cemetery, that people went, went, went like, "What the hell is this? Like, how come we never?" If it wasn't at their local bookstore, they never they just didn't know it existed.
2: Right. Well, my stepfather told me that you know. It- I had no idea there was a, a that Richard Bachman and Stephen King were the same person, right? And mm-hmm. and it was and it was my stepfather who sort of pointed it out that pointed that out to me one day and I, it blew my mind because not only did I not know that you could write books under, you know, different names. I didn't even know that was a thing, but it just the the, the level of of output That he was achieving, albeit, you know, sometimes enhanced with (laughs) liquor and cocaine and and who the hell knows. In the 80s, it's just absurd. I mean, he's still, you know, in his 70s, he's still incredibly prolific by any account. Mm -hmm. But like in the 80s, just the amount of material that was going through the word processor of the gods, right, was just absolutely astonishing. Yeah.
1: There are other authors that rattle off books with that level of speed, you know, like, like Coons or John, yeah. you know, for a period, John Grisham I sure, remember, but, was, you know, you couldn't take a, a fucking flight without a new Grisham book being out. But I would argue that King is writing at a, you know, this is a judgment call, but I think he's, he's writing at a, a higher quality of writing than what I would consider like airport books.
2: Yeah. yeah. And he's also having a bigger impact on the culture and, you Oh, know, for sure. Unquestionably, you know, Dean Koontz, I, I I'm I'm a Dean Koontz fan. I you know appreciate Dean Koontz, and yes, he's incredibly prolific. But like, just put the number of hits up against each other, and it's not even it's a joke. Like it's a joke yeah, when you put sure. the number of hits up against anybody when you're Stephen King. Nobody has had more of an impact on American literature in I don't know the last fifty to a hundred years. I mean, like yeah. I'm probably pissing off some like second year lit major somewhere. Going well, actually. You know, I'm talking about popular culture. I'm talking about the effect of a writer on the popular culture. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about, you know, I'm not talking about it from a, a literary uh, criticism standpoint, although I would argue that he's written some absolutely incredible literary material as well as, you know, more popular material and pulpy material. Like, but it's, you know, it's just astonishing and it's not fair. And we're all sort of living in awe of him.
1: I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that you began reading King when you were your one of your current son's age, 11, and that that's too early. Is that to say that you are not letting your 11-year-old read King?
2: Yeah, I'm not letting him read King, and I'm not letting him watch certain movies that I was allowed to watch at that age, too. I mean, first of all, I think being 11 in 1987 was probably different than being 11 in 2020, and... Mm-hmm you know uh, and then certainly in my case i was too unsupervised like unsupervised too to a level that i would not recommend anyone not supervise their children um in a way it was great because you know i i could stay up late and watch letterman at 12:30 when i was 13 which is not a great thing to do when you have to get up and go to bed the next morning and I you know, I could read under the covers with a flashlight and you know, and read Skeleton Crew and Night Shift and Carrie and and scare the shit out of myself. And um, you know, I I, I think that I just got those horror calluses earlier, you know, because right. when when I was eleven, twelve, thirteen, like I know a lot of us listening and you guys probably were, like, I was having sleepovers at my friend's house and we were going to Blockbuster and we were begging so and so's mom to rent, you know, one of the Fridays or one of the nightmares for us. Right, right. You know, and we would go and watch it in the converted basement on an old shitty VCR and scare the shit out of ourselves. And like, you know, and 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 then I remember distinctly like we couldn't afford to get like pay channels on cable like HBO, but every 6 months or so HBO would have a free preview weekend and they would show like, you know, some of their showcase movies. 1988, probably one of the preview movies was aliens. And I saw aliens before I ever saw alien because it was on a HBO preview weekend in 1988. And I wore that fucking VHS tape down (laughs) to the bone. I mean, like I watched that movie, no joke, 50 times in a year it's probably from a developmental standpoint like if i'm a you know if i'm looking at like a child psychology uh aspect of this probably not great to expose yourself to to those kind of things without a lot of context but it is what it is as as our president says and <laughs> you know and and it sort of put me on a path to uh, you know a career that that i've that i've been extremely fortunate to have and and enjoy so you know it worked out
0: i think that there's something to be said though of of being that age where horror can be scary to you. I mean, cause your, your kids are your oldest. You said is 11. Like that's a few years away from being the jaded teenager. Right. It's Correct. like, so you're, you're gonna, I don't know. Like I, my, my only experience is I, I get to be the, the kind of cool uncle to my nephews where I show them super inappropriate stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's something great about it. I, I remember showing them a uh, little shop of horrors and I showed them the director's cut with the bleak ending um, wow. and it blew their mind because they hadn't, you know, I think maybe the oldest at that time was nine or 10. They had no idea that that a movie could have a, a, a sad ending. Right, like that, that just wasn't even on their radar. Like they, they didn't know that was possible, and they were just like, "You can't eat eat the girl," you know. It's like the the plants can't win. That's not how how movies work, you know. Sure. I don't know. There's, th- th- there is something beautiful about being at that age where something you see will keep you up at night. Like I, I, I remember freaking myself out about one of the Fridays. I think I've told that story on this show before, Um, you know, where I watched it at, at a sleepover and I could have swore to God. I saw Jason Voorhees standing in the backyard, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, I, I, I had those moments like in, and, and maybe it's just wistful nostalgia looking back on it now. But to me that, that seems to be like that magical time period of showing. Well, it, it is showing it, in a second.
2: And, and those those are the reasons that certain movies and certain books stay with you forever is because you know when you're a certain age you're susceptible right to being to being manipulated in a way that really really deeply makes you feel makes you feel scared makes you feel excited joyful you know in a way that as we become a little more analytical and cynical and guarded you know it's it's harder and especially if you work in you know, TV movies. Uh, you're looking at something from a technical standpoint too, as much as you're looking at it from a storytelling standpoint. And so, yeah, there the, there are those magical years. And I'm trying with my my older son now to sort of give him a a slow, responsible indoctrination into the world of horror. So, right, you know, we're watching like a couple of weeks ago, we sat down, we watched The Sixth Sense, and you know, and and it's a it's brilliant, obviously, and it's it's you know it's a bit of a thriller as much as it is true horror, but I can't tell you how happy it made me to watch him. I just turned and watched him for the last four minutes of that movie. Yeah. And is it, as it comes together for him and he, uh, you know, we, we're not like, we don't let them swear like, you know, openly, but when it's appropriate, like we'll let a couple of, you know, shits slip by uh-huh. and Watching him, he had the biggest, widest saucer eyes you've ever seen, and he just kept going, holy shit, holy shit, (laughs) holy shit. And that brought me so much joy because it made me remember what those moments used to feel like, right? And that's the point. And and so, you know, actually, he's having two friends over tonight, and we're going to try Jaws. And so, nice. you know, and, and you know, what's weird is I'm less worried about them, like, you know, freaking out over the severed head and the boat dive than I am just being bored during the Indianapolis story. I mean, I, I, that's my <laughs> favorite part of the movie. But like, that is where you're going to lose three 11 and 12 year old boys. Is They're going know. to
1: get snacks. And you're like, no, you will sit down. This is fucking yes. film history. This is fucking yeah. history. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Exactly. Respect yeah. Robert Shaw in my house. God damn it.
1: Also, you yes. used the term uh, horror calluses a minute ago, which I think is a really good way of putting a thing that I've been trying to put into words for a while. Mike, my, my uh, best friend is uh, a lady that has she won't watch horror or she didn't yeah. grow up watching horror, was not exposed to it. And so I'm a big horror guy. And there's been a lot of times where i have like, oh, you know, she's really into movies, but I can't show her this. You know, and there's there's been a couple of occasions where we like sat down to watch something and she'll just get too freaked out. And it's it's something that, you know, over some scene or some shot that's like not even remotely frightening. And I'm like, you know, I'm a good friend. I'm not going to fucking clown her for sure. it. If, she, if she's scared, she's scared.
2: You Why know, did you have to say clown. <laughs> I mean, it's fucked but, up.
1: Yeah. If you get to that age and these movies are still frightening to you, it's be- it's because you didn't build up those calluses. And, and just in the last couple of years, she's so- sort of been branching out. She told me the other night she watched Nightbreed and I was so <laughs> fucking proud of her. Like, there's no way she would have watched Nightbreed a couple of years ago where she watched um, a-, a couple of times she and I went to the movies together and saw the trailer for Dr. Sleep. And she right. would either get up and go to the bathroom or like shield her eyes because the trailer for Dr. Sleep was too scary yeah. for her. Wow. She watched Dr. Sleep the other day, loved it. And I'm like, no way. I, I was so mad that I wasn't like, I was jealous that I wasn't there for that experience for her, you know? Cause I feel like she's like starting to break it in now and like crack her knuckles and and get into that.
2: Yeah. You're right. building you're, up
1: uh, her horror calluses, horror calluses, yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: her horror personal trainer or sponsor or whatever you want, you know? Well, um, I
1: try not to be pushy about it because again, right. it's like, if something makes, if something makes someone uncomfortable, you don't want to make them do it. You know, I would yeah, love to watch something terrifying with her. I was, well, I was trying it. to dare her once to watch, uh, just the opening of it chapter one with me. And right. she's like, absolutely not. And I'm like, what about in like broad daylight? She's like, sure. no, <laughs> like fucking no what, way. I want to
2: see a seven year old kid's arm get ripped off and dragged into a su- I mean, my yeah. argument
1: is who doesn't, you know, who doesn't, who doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Which sort of brings us back around to what we're here to talk about today, which is Eyes of the Dragon, which is not yeah. in any way a scary story, I would argue. Not
2: that. really. Not really. Although, you know, Randall Flagg is in it. I mean. Yes. And he is uh, a a really sort of nasty wizard-like character with nefarious motives in it. But, For sure. But, but tonally, it's so different. And so, you know, so all this came about, you know, after it. You know, I had I had actually written another pilot based on a Stephen King short story called "The Things They Left Behind," which was republished, I think, in just after Sunset, around two thousand three or so. Mm-hmm. And and so I had written this this pilot. We sold it to NBC, and it didn't get made. But uh, between that and it, I had gotten to know uh, Stephen King's longtime agent, Rand Holston, and so Rand called me up and and said, you know, come on over and and sort of let's talk about like other Stephen King projects, which, you know, obviously the answer is please now, yes, and like and and so I remember going over to Paradigm, which is the agency that represents King and being taken into this sort of library on the bottom floor of this very fancy office. And it was like this very wood-paneled classic library that sort, you know, would have been at home in like Clue or something, right? And Rand's assistant comes and lays this gigantic binder on a table, leaves me there with the binder and closes the door. And so now I'm in like this, you <laughs> know,
1: it's like an
2: yeah. impossible
1: thing. What it's the crazy. Yeah,
2: her eyes
0: wide shut. Yeah, yeah, it's very <laughs> yeah. eyes wide
2: shut or like the firm or you know, it's like it, you know, I'm sitting there at this at this conference table with this binder in this windowless library, right? And I open up this binder, and it is a grid of the status of every single Stephen King property ever made, being made, or about to be made. It shows you like here's the title, here is who controls the rights, here's the current status of it. He had flagged a couple of things for me, no pun intended. Um he uh he had flagged a couple of things for me up top, and one of them was Eyes of the Dragon. And it, it was kind of weird because that's not something you think about when you think about stephen king generally speaking right i had my own experience with it as a kid i think some people have had their experiences with it but like it hasn't had the same cultural resonance or staying power as you know so many of the other stories or or you know even the films and so i was intrigued enough to go and read the book again and i hadn't read it since i was whatever age i got it like 12 and i was shocked and I was shocked because it was so cutting and funny and sarcastic and snarky. And it's like, you don't think mm-hmm. of Stephen King writing in this sort of snarky tone, but he writes in this in this narrator's voice telling you the entire story, what's going on. And it's, it's clear to me anyway, my takeaway was that this narrator doesn't like these people in this story and that he's kind of just <laughs> yeah. taking joy in in their misery and taking joy in like just how misguided they are. And, and it instantly started to get under my skin because thinking about it in terms of, and I didn't know whether or not we were talking about a movie or a TV series. I was, you know, I was just reading it. And I instantly started thinking about somebody like, I don't know why, but somebody like Alan Cumming, reading this narration and just reading it with the most sort of fuck you snarkiness like i really couldn't be bothered to narrate the story for you but if i must here's what happened in the kingdom of delane one of the thousand known kingdoms and who the hell knows why it's one of the thousand i mean did they actually count the kingdoms you know it's you know (laughs) you know look i mean I, i i am nothing if not snarky when it comes to writing i mean you know with with pride and prejudice and zombies you know i wanted to be snarky and subvert jane austen and And with Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, I wanted to subvert sort of that Doris Kearns Goodwin, you know, uh, David McCullough-esque biography. But this was like, it already felt like he was halfway to subverting the fairy tale, the classic Arthurian legend of England in that same way. And then like, it just had all these incredible details. Like you mentioned weaving, you know, weaving these napkins into a uh, uh, one thread at a time into an, uh, a rope to escape a tower and a tiny working loom in a dollhouse. And, you know, it just, it had all of these mythical traditional elements, but it also had so much room, I think, to be deconstructed. And so I started thinking about it seriously. And it st- it took, it started to take shape into a series. I found a way to break the book into nine or 10 episodes so that the book would have been the first season of this. Right. And, and sort of tell the story and uh, you know, as we went on and as we were developing it, I, I invented a couple of characters and you know, it, but really leaned into the humor as much as the horror. And hmm. and so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this in terms of an hour long show that I would have sat down to watch with my parents when I was, you know, I don't know, 12, 13, you know, like your, your Star Treks, your Doctor Who's, your Twilight Zones, your Xena's, your uh, so on and so on. Right. And now sort of like Stranger Things, you know, it's like, it's what the, the network execs love to call co-viewing now. And really it's just, it's just genre that family can watch together. And so I said, well, here's an opportunity to sort of create a Stephen King gateway drug, you know, even more than like, you know, Castle Rock was. I, I love Castle Rock. Castle Rock though has, you know, a much more traditionally dark Stephen King hue. This was aimed squarely at families watching a Stephen King-ish show together and having fun doing it and having fun with the scariness of it and having fun with the humor of it and having fun with the fantasy elements of it. And it just got me really excited. And uh and so, you know. It took, it, it took forever and ever to figure out there was some kind of like rights stuff that needed to be figured out and it took forever. And And then we took it out and pitched it around and lots of people wanted it and then ended up going to Hulu. And uh, I wrote a pilot for Hulu and like I'm my, my own biggest critic and I will never say this, uh, but I kind of liked the pilot to give you an idea of like, you know, (laughs) like I kind of liked it. Like I, I I didn't love it, but like, I didn't like viciously hate it. Like I viciously hate most of the things that I write. And so, and they were super excited about it. Like, you know, effusive and, and it started, it started to feel like, Oh my God, like we're going to make this show. Like this show is getting made now. The reason that it didn't happen. Okay. So as someone who still works in television and like, you know, has to not step on a landmine here, but like there was a, uh, there was a regime change at the worst possible moment at Hulu. And, um, you know, when regime changes happen, the incoming people, as great as they are, take a look around and like, don't necessarily want to inherit the projects of the people that just got replaced. In our case, I think we had a lot of goodwill at Hulu because people were really excited about the script and, you know, they had had success with Castle Rock and this was a kind of perfect building off of that. And, and it was so expensive guys, like (laughs) basically to do this show, the way that we were pitching it was, you know, going to be like upwards of a hundred million dollars a season or something like that. And because it's a Stephen King property the the deal that we had with Hulu was they couldn't just order a pilot and then decide they had to either order a whole season and spend that you know 90 100 million dollars whatever it was or pass and so you know they passed and uh and and you know and and look from a financial standpoint I certainly don't blame them it's you know it's a big bet but I was so crushed because I had gotten so excited about the idea of making this show because I really thought that it was going to be something so different in the Stephen King adaptation world. And maybe that means it would have been different in a bad way, but I can guarantee you it would have been different. And it would have been something that me and my kids would have sat down and watched this weird sort of Darker, weirder, fucked up, Game of Thrones minus the n- nakedness for the whole family to enjoy together.
1: And the incest. Right. I, I do think that you struck the nail on the head saying that it's sort of a King Gateway drug because this is this is the story that got me into King in the first place when I was very young. Like my grandmother read this book to me. I really I, I liked it enough to be like, what else did this guy write? And right. it was spooky stuff, and I was a morbid kid, so it was really easy to make that transition. When I when I think about Eyes of the Dragon, I think about why why doesn't this exist? Even if you do, you know, never mind a series. If you just wanted to do this as a movie, you could absolutely collapse this into a two, sure. two and a half hour movie and it would work. It could be a Stephen King movie that's like PG-13. You could take your kids to see it. Like I, I, I see exactly what you're talking about here. And I, I do think that was the right approach. So it sounds yeah. like you guys were were on a, on the right path
2: you know, I I don't want people to get the idea that it's like, you know, me going back to the mashup. Well, again, because it's, it wasn't, it was very emotional. It had very sort of dark undercurrents to it, but the narration was particularly judgmental and even mean-spiritedly snarky. And that was the fun for me. And also again, like, what would a Stephen King fairy tale King Arthur look like? And what right. would those elements look like? And that was so, so fun. And, you know, when it gets dark, believe me, like there's that whole, you know, ending of of the book where, you know, flag turns into a demon and there's a big chase up the staircase and it's all very, you know, terrifying and people are put to death and kids are, you know, imprisoned in towers. Like there's no getting around how dark it is. And, but- Like any good fairy tale. Like any good there fairy is. tale. Right. Correct. But, but, you know, I really saw a chance to do something tonally unique for Stephen King. He's done the straight drama. He's done, you know, um, the stuff that's actually aimed at, you know, younger readers, but not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily classify as YA. Uh, And then there's the sort of classic, you know, Stephen King horror novel, but this, you know, this, this is kind of one of a kind in the, in the canon. And, and it was so appealing to me. And I was really bummed that it, that it didn't come together.
1: Bringing the humor forward is like, you know, I'm really excited to hear that about it because uh, I think that's like an undersold element of King. I think I've said this on the show before. And if I haven't, I've certainly said it on Twitter, but there's a number of King properties that you could reboot or were written to be like, really dark comedies with horror elements. And they were either adapted incorrectly. Like I would argue the Tommy knockers needs to be a dark comedy. Needful things needs to be a dark comedy. Right. Um, Making eyes of the dragon, you know, sort of pulling that humor element forward, I think is a master stroke. Like
2: that would have been fucking perfect for this property. Well, I was excited about it. And, and, you know, I've worked in comedy a lot and I've worked in mm-hmm. horror a lot and and I don't think that's an accident because I think that comedy and horror are really close cousins in a way because Oh, absolutely. It's so much about building an expectation and how you subvert the expectation. When I was hiring people for a show that I'm I'm running now, we have a room, it's a it's an anthology series for Disney Plus called Just Beyond. Basically, like I pitched it as Disney Plus's Twilight Zone or Amazing Stories, right? So it's Mm -hmm. very much genre stories with twists and with you know all different kinds of horror elements and genre elements and you know, but but co-viewing, right? So it's not like you you know you're not going to see blood flying all over the place and you know and and look, it's Disney Plus, so you kind of get like where the you know where the line is. But but when I was interviewing writers. I interviewed a lot of comedy writers who had never done genre or horror before, and a couple of them I hired. And the reason is, I feel like if you're a funny person, you can write horror. You can learn to write horror really well. It's not necessarily always true the other way around. It's not necessarily true that if you can write horror really well, you can be a comedy writer. It's weird. It tends to flow in one direction, but some of the darkest fuckers i know on this planet are some of the funniest and you know i mean like you look at you know the the king himself king himself is is snarky and funny and and that's so much a part of his personality and it comes through even in the way that he writes straight horror there's a zest to it there's a gleefulness to how his prose flows and there's a gleefulness in some of the crazy situations and way and and, uh, he puts people in and kills people. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he doesn't get enough credit for, for how funny he is.
1: I interviewed Matthew Holness a while back. He created one of the funniest things I've ever seen in Garth Marenghi's dark place. That is a hysterically funny show. And then he also went and directed this movie possum, which is one of the most disturbing horror films I've seen ever. And certainly one of my favorites of the past 10 years. And I asked him about this relationship between comedy and horror. And and he said, basically what you're saying that, you know, there's this, there's a buildup and a, and a, a buildup and a release, a natural rhythm to these, to these two things that are almost identical. And I agree, you know, I mean, what is a jump scare if not a a fucking punchline?
2: You yeah, know? exactly. Exactly. So and and, and, and this misdirect completely. on the way to the punchline, right? Yeah, and, and exactly. This is all my way of saying again, that, I was disappointed to say the least that we didn't get the opportunity, but I mean, you know, who knows who's to say that at some point, you know, it won't come back around. Maybe it'll come back around as a movie, but you know, the challenge of it is that it, it falls in between those sort of tried and true boxes that people like to put genre in. It's, you know, is it funny? Is it scary? Is it sci-fi? Is it, well, no, it's a little bit of all of that. And that's what makes it so special. And I think it's I think it's one of the most special and underappreciated books that he's actually written.
0: There is something to King's fantasy that, for some reason, that's the stuff that just never makes it past development. The Talisman has been mm-hmm. they've been tried to make trying to make that for years and years and years. Spielberg's had the rights since it was published, I think, and I've read I can't tell you three or four different screenwriters' attempts at it you know i've read those drafts that never made it down the development line you know dark tower you know is, is another example and then eyes of the dragon there's just something about king's fantasy that just can't get get to the finish line unless it's you know that shitty sony dark tower movie
1: you
2: know, <laughs> yeah i mean look a lot of lovely people worked in that movie and and you know it listen i have been parts of movies that people just Outright hate, and so I get it. Like you know, it's never easy, but especially with that kind of material, you're doing Stephen King, but the the Dark Tower stuff has such an inherent sort of seriousness to it, and sort of old west muscularity to it. And then on top of that, it has you know witches, and it's like it's it's very hard to it's very hard to to distill all of that into a season of television, let alone a two hour movie. It's a, it's a huge challenge. And so I hope that with more and more streamers and more and more demand for long form content and, and, you know, episodic content, I hope that maybe we can get another crack at this someday, but, you know, certainly for me right now, I've got my hands full and I'm very thankful and lucky to have my hands full, but this one, this one definitely, this one hurt
0: you said you had an idea to continue it on yeah um one of the great things about the ending of this book is that it promises way way more stories that we never get to hear right the end of the, the end of the book is is a group going after flag and you flag who had just barely escaped with his life after this final confrontation and there's a little group of of outcasts essentially that that go out uh, and chase him down while king peter like regains the kingdom And I have to assume that that's probably where you were going, right? The, that is the adventure
2: that the adventures. And okay. So, you know, at the very beginning, you know, the narrator says, this is Delane is one of the thousand known kingdoms. Well, there you go. I mean, there's, you know, what are the other 999 kingdoms? What do they look like? What are those, you know, are, do they have more of a, you know, an Eastern influence than a Western? Do they, you know, are they technologically even a little different than Delane? I mean, you can basically do anything. And, you know Peter's there and you can go back to Delane and see how he's you know reasserting control and and sort of patching the the kingdom up after that whole fiasco and and then, you know, Thomas goes off and tries to get revenge on the man who you know ordered the death of his mother. And you think about flagg. Now interestingly, one of the things we had to do in developing the show was not use Randall Flagg because Randall Flag is the property of Sony Pictures it turns out. So we recalibrated him as like this Randall Flag-esque mage, right, who worked in the kingdom and you know did all the same things and all the same scheming and all the same magic and everything but but he goes off and you know the the rule is that he can assume different shapes, different forms. We established that and so you know the problem is that Thomas goes off and wants to you know take this band of misfits and go and chase down Flag but but who's to say A where Flag went and B will they even know Flag when they find him so the story of season 2 was really about that journey intercut with a new threat that was going to come to uh, Delane the big threat to Delane other than you know the scheming of Flag and the palace coup that takes place in season 1 was there's this a war mentioned not really brought to fruition with the Anduin pirates. We, yeah. we made that a, we made that a much bigger deal. And so as the season goes on during season one, the war and this invasion of Delane is, is growing more and more um, is growing more and more intense. And, and Delanians are being slaughtered by the thousands. And it's a much bigger backdrop that all this palace intrigue is taking place against, but really at the end of the day, it's still the story of these two brothers. And it's the story of, you know, a brother who is destined to be king and then deposed. And then there's a, his little brother, the heir to the, the spare to the heir rather, who, you know, nothing much was ever expected from, but, you know, sort of grows into the moment, at least in our version and, and, uh, and takes out or almost takes out flag and, and then chases him down. And it really becomes interestingly more of Thomas's show as time goes on than Peter's because, Thomas is the one out there in, in the wild, you know, exploring strange new kingdoms from season to season, whereas Peter is just kind of hanging out and ruling lane.
0: Thomas is the more interesting character though. I mean, he's, he's somebody who had been manipulated, who kind of knew better. Like he actually witnesses the murder of his father, whether he wants to realize it, you know, at, at the time, because, it, you know, if people haven't read the book. The King is killed with a, a cup of uh, poisoned wine, mm-hmm. um, you know, as is typical. <clears throat> <laughs> That's how, that is the King killer. I think that the, he even says in the, uh, in the book, like if you're going to kill a king poisons the way to do it, uh, but it's a slow acting poison. So Thomas actually witnesses through the eyes of the dragon through a secret passage be- behind a mounted dragon head. Um, he witnesses his father being murdered by flag, and he has this even at, at the point where he's appointed king and his brother is is blamed for the, the murder. He. He, there he inner a turmoil he it's not he doesn't want the crown he's being thrust upon it uh because you know this evil magician knows uh that he is an easier ruler to control. his brother would be Mm -hmm. um and so he's got all this pent-up guilt and by the end of it it's guilt and frustration and rage and he wasn't a good king when he had it like and you know had the power and he was taxing the kingdom to death and like so there's all this stuff built into this character and peter who's a very strong regal character throughout all of his imprisonment He is the good he every instinct he has is right on. You know, he's 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 got the the power of the king. He is the one who is obviously born for the crown. And that's a great character. But it's you know, there is something to be said about the the tormented brother. Uh, there and, there's really, and, and
2: he's so much more interesting. There's really not that far for Peter to go because you know he's Peter the Perfect, right? I mean, you know, like you said, you know, he's the he's the uh, the crown prince, and everybody loves Peter, and all of Delane is so excited for the day that you know Peter's going to assume the mantle, and and you know he, he, they're all so sure he's going to be a great king, and he probably will be. But but Thomas is you know he, he's at least the way I wrote him. I really leaned into that bitterness or that sort of invisibility that sometimes you know those siblings can feel when you know they ha- they're they're behind one of those kids one of those perfect kids one of those straight A you know varsity champion type kids who never do anything wrong and you know who everybody loves and and yeah i mean he's bitter and i think he's a little angry at peter even though he he loves him and flag is able to like you said take that manipulate that he's also very awkward, you know, he's in a much more awkward stage in his life. And so when we do sort of an epilogue of season one, all of a sudden we cut to, you know, this little hunting party out in the, out in the wild. And like, he's a fucking hunk. Like he just, he grew into, you know, he grew into his body, he grew out of his awkward phase. And so, you know, all of a sudden. Um, he's like this, you know, young warrior Prince, but still with the humility of the kid who grew up in the shadows. Right. Which is, that's an interesting character. And I would have loved to explore that, you know, as we, as we went on.
1: When I like think of the characters, I imagine Peter as sort of like uh, legend era, Tom Cruise and Thomas <laughs> as, as sort of just like Beavis you know sure, like those sure. are those are the two like representations in my mind i'm sure that you know obviously you didn't get like far far enough along in the process where you would have been talking to anyone about casting or i assume so but yeah did you I mean, write with anyone in mind for flag
2: yeah i mean you know what i wanted for flag was like a you know like a sam rockwell type um oh, wow. Interesting like because you know again he's got to play both sides of of the coin. He's got to be charming, but he also needs to have just a pulsating darkness under and you know Sam Rockwell's a chameleon. Like he's amazing mm-hmm. and he can he can play so dark uh and and be convincing, but then he can also be like the most charming you know, like gentleman Broncos, Sam Ronkwell, like in in the universe. And, and uh, I don't know, he's someone I thought about, but really the only specific piece of casting to the point where I actually reached out to him through his reps was Alan Cumming. I was like, I got to have Alan Cumming be the narrator. I don't know what it is. I'm just, you know, that I'm just obsessed with the idea of Alan Cumming narrating this. And uh, I still maintain that he would have done an incredible job as he does in in all things he tackles but uh i suppose we may never know
1: would the Do narrator think- have ever been seen or only heard
2: you know we we went back and forth on that
1: cuz i can picture coming in a big fucking like wingback chair you know exactly. reading reading in front of a fire and that's exactly
2: brilliant. i think i think it would have been more of like a testimonial like he's always in one setting or maybe we could have made a joke going forward of like You know the different settings that we find him in, and just give absolutely no explanation for why he's there. Uh, You know, just could be really fun. But yeah, I just thought that he's just so over it. He's so great at just looking down his nose as a character at the whole situation, and and really just not loving the fact that he's sitting here having to tell you this story. Where he just he's not interested. He doesn't like anybody in the story. I just find that so funny. And maybe it would have been a disaster. Who knows.
0: Yeah, I'm curious about the the age issue. Like when in your story did you tell the full story of the kids in childhood and then like the bulk of the story being the 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 teenage versions of Peter and Thomas or did you just decide that it was cleaner and to start with with them at like you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, cast one right, you know one person, and then move on well, from we, there.
2: We flash back a couple times for each of them, so we start with them, you know, whatever they were, twelve and sixteen, you know, I, th- I think it was something like that, and uh, and we flash back and see sort of you know the frequent disappointments for Thomas of not being able to win Roland's favor. You know, no matter what he does, Roland is just not really into him, and see how much that hurts him, and and set the table for him being manipulated to actually, you know, overthrow his brother. Um, we also see Peter meeting uh, Ben Stodd as a kid, and you know, establish the the closeness because Ben is a much bigger character in this in this story than he was even in the book, um, because he's a person that he can tell. The crown prince, Peter, the hard truths when he needs to, because, you know, even though he doesn't have that kind of uh, rank, uh, he doesn't give a shit. Like, they're friends and he doesn't care that Peter's a prince and he's not. That was a fun character to think about how we would grow over the seasons as well, and sort of how he would assume the mantle of power and help his friend uh, not only escape the needle and escape imprisonment, but how he would also grow as one of the most important people in Delane. But no, I mean, it was important to set the table that. Thomas drew a shitty card, you know, like he, he, you know, his father was not the greatest guy. Uh, he was rolling the good, but he was really just kind of rolling the okay. Let's face it, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and he wasn't a great father to both of his sons. He was only a, a real father to one of his sons and, it, and he really paid the price for it.
0: Well, and you know, it's really fascinating about that dynamic too, as I, you know, I re read the book recently and, uh, Thomas is Roland's son. Like in Vision, like he apparently looks a lot like him. Peter is his his uh, mother's son. Peter takes right. after his mom. Thomas takes after his dad, and his dad rejects him because he's re- kind of rejecting himself, right. uh, which is fascinating. And but what's really interesting are the parallels that King drew, even in this you know three hundred page story, where uh, King Roland had one great moment, and that's when he slew a dragon he killed a dragon right with a bow and arrow and what's thomas's one great moment that we get to read is he slays almost slays flag with his father's bow and arrow correct you know it's like it, it's such a an interesting that's why thomas to me is is so much more interesting of a character and why like i i love that you know that you were going to spend a season you know doing the book but like to me the meat of this what i what i more and more than not seeing the adaptation is seeing the continuing adventures of, of Thomas and seeing you build that character.
2: Um, yeah. And it's funny. It's, I feel the same way. And it's funny you mentioned like Roland having that one thing and we, you know, we open up the pilot basically on that hunt where, you know, he fells the the last of the dragons. Right. And, 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 and then you cut years later and he's kind of this heavy set, you know, like he's, he's basically, he's still, He's still he's that middle aged guy who's still talking about the big touchdown he he caught in college or or even in high school. It's just funny how King is able to humanize in that short span of time, uh, this fairy tale king that in a way that that I had never read before. Like I'd never read about a fairy tale king that you know was basically living his his life through recounting past glories or a past glory. It's so interesting. And it, it's just one of the million interesting details that King has in the book that would have been fun to explore in the series.
1: Whenever I read the book, you know, you always sort of fan cast in your head. And uh, I just realized while you were talking about this with Roland slaying Niner. I think Niner is the name of the dragon. Niner is right? the name of the dragon. Yeah. yeah. That I've always sort of imagined like uh, Dick Van Patten. In in <laughs> as as King Roland with like you for, know for like you from Spaceballs
0: Spaceballs space yeah yeah. Well,
1: yeah well that's the thing as you were talking I went and like looked and I was like what is that fucking guy's name and I looked up like Spaceballs King and his name is King Roland like I no never even made that connection shit
2: you're right you're right yeah. oh
1: my god which is probably some sort of weird thing going on in the synapses of my brain worm riddled brain but uh, oh. <laughs> Mel Brooks that plagiarist. <laughs> it never even occurred to me like that. Maybe that that's is why I Was making that connection.
0: Are you a, a Dark Tower fan? See, as well,
2: Dark Tower, I will admit, is is a blind spot in my King fandom. I, you know, I think I got through two, maybe two and a half, and I'll admit it, I'm not really a, a fantasy guy, and those are just so densely fantasy and just of a sort of different. Uh, of a different style, and and so no, I don't I don't make any claims to be uh, a Dark Tower. So I guess I'm not a King completist in that way. You know, I try to read everything else, and of course I miss stuff here and there, and of course I can't keep up now with you know the two books a year he still publishes. My God, yeah. but you know, but but uh, no, that's a hole in my fandom. I'll admit it.
0: That's it's interesting because Eyes of the Dragon is is essentially the the beginner book version of the dark tower. It takes right, place yeah. in the same, the, the same universe. Uh, you know, a lot of the, I mean, not just, you know, flag being one of the main villains of the dark tower as well. Uh, they, they share a lot of similarities. So it's, it's interesting to me how, how you gravitated towards one, but bounced completely off. Well, don't get me wrong.
2: One. If we continue the series, I would have read all of them and, ruthlessly ripped off whatever I could without, you know, getting uh running afoul of Sony's lawyers. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like you only have so much space. And, you know, and I read a lot. And and I read primarily now I read weirdly nonfiction. I don't know why that is. Like I've really skewed toward reading, you know, about writers and about, you know, filmmakers and about historical figures lately, you know, almost as much as I read fiction. But um. yeah I just I, I, it just didn't grab me in the same way I don't know why I don't know why now I mean speaking of nonfiction and Stephen King I do read on writing almost every year almost every year without fail I reread it because to me it's just the most relatable purest distillation of process that I've ever read by mm-hmm. anybody And and just the way that he's able to talk about the process and talk about telepathy and talk about uh, his own experiences with finding his voice—it's just every time I—I I feel myself getting a little too bogged down and and like oh this is just a a job and I have to get up and do this like I read that and it just reminds me of how lucky you are to get to play and create magic and and you know reach people telepathically through a computer—it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's amazing.
1: Can I ask you a, a couple of questions about your non Eyes of the Dragon projects? And one that is King related and one that is not. Sure. The one that is not is, in regards to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, was there any truth to the rumor that at one point Trent Reznor was going to do the soundtrack to that and then also appear as a vampire in that movie?
2: There is truth to him almost doing the soundtrack. I do remember that. I do remember being extremely a surprised B uh, thrilled at the prospect of him doing that. Uh, I don't know whether or not he was going to appear as a vampire, although it wouldn't surprise me in the least because we did shoot that movie in new Orleans. And Mm -hmm. so, which is where, you know, he lives, I guess most of the time. Um, Well, he
1: moved, well, he, he moved out of there. I'm going to sound like, yeah, I'm like a big, trent reznor guy this is gonna come off creepy but like you know i'm aware of my man's <laughs> what, what, whereabouts where exactly
0: did he move scott what's his address yeah, uh, he lives
1: back in la now oh no way yeah no. yeah he lived in la because he lived in the manson house for a while right then he moved down to new orleans and then uh i think around the time he got married he moved back to to la
2: you learn something uh, new every day super creepy yeah. nice to meet a trent reznor stalker um, oh, I love nine inch
1: nails that's like
2: well my- me too i you know i just got a t-shirt uh, commemorative t-shirt of the mud set at woodstock 94 with trent's uh picture on the front of it and i got that t-shirt because i was at that show no fucking way really fucking set live saw that it is,
1: live that is disgusting to me that is one so of the so mad at you
2: seminal pop culture moments. That's the closest I've actually been to participating in a true pop culture moment. I think in my life,
1: I think that is a historical moment. That's like the man, we're getting way off track, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Like when, when Woodstock 94 happened, I was a kid. I was, you know, uh, I was in Nirvana at the time. I was really into nine inch nails. Um, but I remember like they had it on pay-per-view and I talked my parents into getting it. And, uh, we went out to dinner that night and I was like, I want to get back at X amount of time because I want to see nine inch nails perform. And my parents were like, what is, what, what is a nine inch nails? Like they had no fucking idea. Right. And I are oh, a rock band and blah, 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 blah. I'm like fucking 13 or whatever I was at the sure. time. And, uh, then we got home and I was like, all right, I'm going to go watch it in my room. And I went up to my room and I started watching it. And meanwhile, they started watching it downstairs. Uh-oh. And uh, immediately, Trent comes out on, stairs, uh, or out on stage just like slathered in mud. And he's like calling everyone pig fuckers or something. And like w- like within two songs, my dad like came up and knocked on my door and was like, you need to turn this off. Oh. This is inappropriate." Like they made oh. me fucking turn it off. Oh. Yeah.
2: Um, awful. 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 I'm sorry to hear that. It was... Um, If it makes you feel any better, that was an hour of bliss, an awful four days of hell. Awful. Raining, freezing. Our tent broke the first night. For some reason, these idiots put 100 porta-potties at the top of a hill. And at the end of (laughs) night one, at the end of night one, Somebody or some thousand people thought it would be hilarious to turn them all over. And so we had to (laughs) trudge up a hill of piss and shit to get back to our broken tent the next two nights. We were freezing. We were hungry. We didn't bring enough money. But that one set made it worth it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You got to see that. And uh, Larry Bud Melman introduced them. That's right.
2: That oh my yeah. God. That's right. That's right. So balls the,
1: off, it's nine inch nails. Like I'm well familiar with that performance at this point, but anyhow, uh, my second question, which is King related is, you know, you produced it. Chapter one, it chapter two. I'm curious if you were on that project on the first one, when Carrie Fukunaga was on it. And if so, what your experience was like working with him?
2: Uh, I was, I was, uh, you know, so just to back up a little bit, Dan Lin and Roy Lee, the producers, had the rights to the book, and you know, years before the movie ended up getting made, they were nice enough uh, to include my partner David and I in helping get it made. You know, we were there to sort of you know be of service as much as we could to them. And so Dan, I think, particularly had a relationship with Carrie or reached out to Carrie and got him interested in the project. I'm not sure that my It might, maybe Roy did too, but, um, and yeah, so we, we spent some time, you know, maybe a year and a half, if that seems like the right amount of time working Mm -hmm. with Carrie and working on the well, Carrie and, uh, and Chase were working on the script. And I mean, what can I say? The guy is an absolutely brilliant auteur filmmaker, Mm -hmm. absolutely brilliant. And who the hell knows? why things happen or don't happen. I'm sure his version of the movie would have been incredible. I'm sure it would have been different and of course, but incredible. And look at him now. I mean, guys making a Bond movie. Like he's, you know, I think, I think, I think he's just fine. But I have a huge amount of fondness for Carrie. I loved the time that we got to spend with him. He's a he's a great person. He's a great filmmaker. Um and, you know, obviously things worked out pretty great with Andy and Barbara. So, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, for uh, sure. it's, it's, um, you know, and again, I was, I was lucky and I feel extremely fortunate to have basically just had a front row seat in watching an incredible director make a horror classic and getting to spend a summer with those kids watching Andy, watching Barbara, watching, Dan watching Roy make that movie. Like it's, it's incredible. And then to have it have the success, you know, it'll be, it'll be something I'm, I'm grateful for, for the rest of my life.
1: Good answer. I remember, I remember I've read the Fukunaga draft of the, uh, of the script and it's, it's, it's great in a different way. You know, uh, it has a completely different third act and all, and all that shit. But, um, I remember when he left the project being like heartbroken because that that version of it was so good. And then when I saw chapter one, like. I mean, you know, any worry evaporated uh, that it, it's so fucking good. It, it's it's sort of fascinating because typically when you have uh, a script that doesn't get made and then a version that does, you know, there's a disparity in, in terms of quality in, in that case, I would argue that both of them are equally as good. They're just in different ways.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, uh, it's, it's just different. You know, different filmmakers with with um, with you know different visions, and and right. that doesn't mean one vision is bad. It just means you know totally. one vision is more in line with you know what I think. You know, the people, frankly, paying for the movie were hoping it would be. And yeah, I don't know, think
1: anyone was disappointed. Nobody, you know, nobody was, was disappointed. Was, nobody oh, was, was so disappointed. Good. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. know,
2: it, it, I love that it worked out for everybody, you know? Yeah, totally. I love that it worked totally. out for everybody because everybody deserves their success. Agreed. Well, Agreed. So, so much of the, the
0: secret sauce ended up being those kids. Yeah. Like I I, I um, I was there for a, a press day. Uh, so this is like towards the, the end of my run at Ain't It Cool, but – but I was there for that. And I'll never forget the very, f- We they sat us in a room and it was like me and like eight other journalists. And they would bring the kids in one or two at a time to to interview. And our very first person that we interviewed was uh, Jack Dylan Grazer. And he came in and we're just like, all right, let's, you know, talk about like what and tell us how you came to the this part. And he goes, well, you know, I came in and I auditioned you know for for bill first and then i auditioned for eddie and then uh, i uh, he he just ran through this whole thing and then he goes and then they cast me as bev and like whenever (laughs) he did that there was like a split second where everybody caught up to him and the room just exploded in laughter and like you could tell every single one of those like jaded horror and you know nerd reporters would be like you know what i'll adopt you
2: Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the many testaments you give to Andy is casting those kids. And those kids are so special. Every single one of them is uh, a superstar. And you look at some of the work that they've gone on to do since then. And like, that was the summer, I think at the beginning of that shoot, Finn had like, I don't know, 10,000 Twitter followers or something like that. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the summer, he had like 2 million uh because that was the summer that Stranger Things blew up and and um it, you know every one of those kids is is remarkable and and I have a lot of love for all of them and and I miss some of them and some of them I actually still DM with and Jack is one of them because you know Jack is uh, I mean like you can DM him at any moment and he will get back to you with something snarky some kind of joke I mean he's just that kid he's just he's not a kid anymore he's you know it's huge I just saw the some Shazam materials. I'm like, Oh my God, he's a man now. But, but it it was just a privilege. Honestly, it was one of the biggest privileges of my life, getting to be there to support those filmmakers, to support those kids as much as I could possibly. And, and then, you know, to have the result be what it was. You only get one of those, I think in your career,
1: the chances for a movie, like specifically that one, there's so much shit that can go wrong. I mean, we're talking about how great the casting is and that's, you know, a huge part of it, but then, you know, the, there's the director of the script, the effects, who you got as Pennywise, all that shit. There's so many things that could have gone wrong in that for every single last one of them to have landed is, is remarkable. So yeah, well, I all agree flows, with
2: you. But it all flows through Andy though. You have to remember like. For sure. That all flows through Andy and Andy, you know, beyond casting, beyond the effects, beyond, you know down to every detail of, of every moment of the mix. Like, you know, it's, it's his movie. I mean, it's, you know, again, you know, it it just worked out in, in the way that I guess it was meant to and, you know, two amazing filmmakers were a part of it at different points, but, but everybody won in this case.
1: Well, um, I think that's all I got. Eric, you got anything you want to you want to ask? Yeah, no, I think this is now
0: your your time Seth if there's anything you want to plug or tell people to go see or tell people where to find you. If they want to follow you on social MySpace. medias, if that's the thing, yeah, I mean,
2: I am MySpace, on, I am LinkedIn. on the MySpace. Yeah, I am on the LinkedIn. Uh, no, I, I'm on I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, but like I, you know, the less I tweet, the happier I feel. So it's like you know, you can you can find me on Twitter if you want, but I shouldn't be on Twitter because it makes me miserable. All I do is rage <laughs> rage scroll all day. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, no, I mean, you know, we're, we're writing just beyond now for next year on Disney plus, which will be a really fun genre series for Disney plus. And, and I'm also deep into, uh, a a secret big thing that I'm so NDA'd up the ass on that I can't talk about yet, but that might be out by the time. I mean, might be. Is that the thing you
1: pitched the other day? It is the thing I pitched the other
2: day. Yeah, it is. It's the secret thing I pitched. Curly Sue 2. It's Curly Sue 2. Yeah. Kingcast exclusive. Yeah, no, it's, another it's Kingcast. It's it's Mannequin 3. Uh no, it's uh <laughs> it's it's it it is the it is the the biggest in terms of like the scope and size of it thing that I've ever run in my life. And it it is super exciting and it's super daunting. And uh a lot of people will be excited when they read about it, and a lot of people will be mad at me when they read about it and and, <laughs> and I get it. So, but that'll be uh that'll be for later. When yes.
1: whenever somebody starts talking in those terms thanks to the landscape of the entertainment industry right now i assume it's comic book related
2: Is well book you know related? or it could be any number of like giant ip pools at any different streamer and or you know so well sure sure sure,
1: sure, sure, sure.
2: sure. but no it's not curly suit too that i would be
1: <laughs> fair enough well thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us about this today i'm sorry that uh, your version of Binds of the Dragon is not going forward, but I do Maybe think, someday. Someone will, I think someone will pick this up someday. I don't know if it'll be your version or a movie or or what, but there's no way this thing can go
2: unmade for too much longer. I agree. It's a special one. And uh, and thank you guys so much for having me. I, I, I love the show. I'm a listener and uh, it's really exciting to be a participant today.
1: Pleasure is all ours,
2: sir. Yeah. Please. It's been
1: a great guest. Yes. Thank you.
0: And many thanks to Seth Graham Smith for kind of shining some light on uh, what would have been. It might be another bittersweet episode for you guys. But, you know, I don't know. There's yeah. still something nice about hearing some of what the creative process was in, in these things that never saw the light of day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And did you did you uh, he, he sent us the script after we recorded this. Have you read it yet? No, I have not. I read it and I fucking loved it. Really? It's, um I think if anything, he undersold how funny it is. Like it's a straight up like dark fantasy comedy. Every page has a couple of jokes on it. Like it's it's very funny. It's really fucking good and kind of a bummer. We didn't get to see that version.
0: So we have a few uh, things coming up Uh, next week. We are covering Salem's Lot.
1: Mm -hmm. Big boy. Big 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 boy title.
0: big, Big boy title. And we have a big boy guest as well. Uh,
1: we do. It is, <laughs> yes. Uh,
0: you you know how we like we like to kind of tease the guest out a little bit. Um, we we'll, we will announce who it is uh, this coming Monday on our Twitter feed. That's KingCast nineteen mm-hmm. at KingCast nineteen. In case you forgot, that's how Twitter works. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what what do you want to tease about this guest?
1: This guest has a hand in some of your favorite TV shows.
0: Mm hmm. Big nerd. Big big nerd, and loves Stephen King, and has even played in the Stephen King sandbox. We can say that, right? Yes, yes, that's true. It's a great I, episode. I I know. I yeah, can say that I don't
1: want to tip the hand on the guest, but I will say it's it's a super sized episode too. Like that recording went longer than any other recording we've done. I don't know what it'll edit down to, but no matter what, it's going to be uh, longer than any episode we've done. This guest, when they told me. Why they wanted Salem's Lot? Like when when it was like, well, here's my angle on it. I was like, so fucking excited. <laughs> it's such <laughs> it's such a curveball, and and the guest absolutely delivers on that front. It's it's fascinating what this guest has to say about Salem's Lot and and why Salem's Lot is important to them.
0: Coming this Friday on our Patreon, we have a new Patreon exclusive bonus episode, awesome commentary track. If we're covering a uh, a crazy title. We're doing the Running Man,
1: mm-hmm. and with, f- Mr. Steve A. G.
0: who is a uh, very funny guy. You know him from the Sarah Silverman program. He's on Superstore. Like you recognize his voice, you know, from a million super funny things. Great guy in the and a great person to have. Kind of talking about the absurdity of of that movie. So, yeah, that'll be available for our Patreon subscribers. And if you have not signed up yet, you can do so at patreon.com slash the king cast. And if you can't you know, afford the the uh, subscription right now, which I totally get, it's tough times out there. You know, if you want to help the show, you can tell your friends to listen to it. You know, the more listeners we have, the longer we can keep yeah. doing this thing.
1: Yeah. And you tell them to, to rate it, too. And it's got to mm. be five stars. You tell your friend to listen to the Kingcast. You say you rate it five stars. If they don't do that, guess what? Not your real friends. Those people. Yep. Yep. And uh, even if they want to be, you can't let them be your friends anymore. Nope. Cut them right the fuck out of your life. You are done yep. with them. Five stars or nothing, folks.
0: We'll see our Patreon folks this Friday with Steve Agee's commentary. And we will see the rest of you next week for Salem's Lot.
1: With Bronson Pinchot.
0: With, with TVs, Bronson. Pinch- you see, you gave it away already. Fuck, it's not Bronson Pincho. It's not Bronson Pincho. This time.